The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the revolt against Ulez, Labour's emerging China strategy, and whether Hollywood screenwriters are right to fear AI. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine this week, Ross Clark writes about the backlash against London Mayor Sadiq Khan's expansion of ULES. He says the motorists' rebellion is just the beginning. He joins me now, along with Ben Clatworthy, transport correspondent at The Times. Ross, can you take us through your argument? Um, well, U- ULES, or the ultra-low emission zone, as it's known, I mean, or- originated about 2008 as a, a- zone in which um, commercial traffic lorries so on were sort of excluded or they had to obey some kind of emissions rules. It was extended to cars in 2019. This is just in the very centre of London. It was extended to the north and south circular roads in 2021. And from this August, Sadiq Khan is planning to extend it to the whole of London to the, you know, the whole of Greater London, which will mean that anybody with a petrol car which doesn't fulfil Euro 5 regulations, which in practice means any car, pet, most petrol cars built before about 20, 2007, or any diesel car which doesn't obey Euro 6 regulations, which means practice anyone built but before about 2016 they'll have to pay 12 pound 50 a day to drive anywhere in london um if they don't pay and uh, you know the thing be policed by um numerous cameras and so on there's some very hefty fines well the one of the big sort of issues of it is the sort of highly regressive nature of it I mean, you know, you buy a sort of brand new Maserati, Lamborghini sort of car that people will turn up and drive around Kensington in the middle of summer. I mean, they might be a little bit cleaner. Um, the exhaust might be a little bit cleaner than your old sort of 15-year-old petrol car. But they aren't caught by this charge. It only applies to sort of people really who, who can't afford a brand new or a newish car which, you know, by definition is, is people of very limited means. And um, you think people um, can't use public transport, carers, nurses, people work out of hours, trades people who need to lug around a lot of kit. They're all going to be caught by this ULES charge, um, whereas, you know, it perhaps doesn't fall upon your wealthier motorist. Ben, do you agree with Ross's argument that there is a backlash against ULES? I mean, the mayor's office likes to quote polling that suggests that there is majority support of the ULES expansion in London. But um, do you do you think that's that's accurate or is that that spin? Well, you can poll until the 
polls come home fundamentally and if the way you word the question on you les is the thing that in time and time again we're seeing how the support is now of course young londoners living in in zones one and two who are doing office-based jobs are clearly not affected by this they wouldn't dream of driving in london anyway they might cycle they might take the tube to work they might take the bus but as ross has just said the tradespeople, the carers people working antisocial hours those are the people that need to drive around and also as some of the people that have been squeezed the most by pay restraint over the years what is very clear though is just how political the ULES is becoming it was interesting today uh, Wednesday that in the commons uh, in PMQs Rishi Sunak was saying that Keir Starmer supports a £12.50 charge for people to go to the doctors it's become that really really emotive topic and it's going to be really interesting with the Uxbridge and South Ryslip by-election this week of how uh, what a hot topic it's become there to the extent that it could be the thing that just about clings on, that lets the Tories cling on to the, the seat because of the unrest in those uh, further out boroughs and, and of London. Well, uh, yes, and, and actually we should say for, for our listeners, we are recording this before we know the results of Thursday's by-election. But Ross, you say in the beginning of your, your piece, it's interesting that the, the Labour candidate who, going into the by-election, is polling ahead of the Tories, but still felt that he had to distance himself from Sadiq Khan's uh, ULEZ plans. Do you think there'll be other Labour parliamentary candidates or perhaps other Labour politicians in the country who who start to distance themselves from ULEZ if they start to see it as being a vote loser rather than a vote winner? Oh, there are quite a few Labour MPs, London Labour MPs, who are against ULEZ you know, for for the reasons that it you know it would affect a lot of people in Labour's core vote. Um, you know, the, those who public sector workers, who carers, people who are, you you know, find it very difficult to use public transport. So um, yeah, I mean the, the party's very divided over it. But um, Keir Starmer, of of course, I mean he he was on LBC radio the other day and was asked repeatedly about um ULES and um he couldn't quite bring himself to oppose it but he he was a bit sort of lukewarm and I think his words were oh Sadiq Khan doesn't really have a choice but to introduce some ULES which of course is complete rubbish it's um entirely within Sadiq Khan's decision whether whether he introduces this or not um yeah, I think the, the, the Labour leadership is not sort of all that happy about ULES and Sadiq Khan for the, the way he is um, potentially very unpopular policy forward. And, and Ben, you covered for The Times the recent High Court case brought by Conservative councillors opposed to the ULES expansion. I wonder what, what you made of that case and do you think we might start seeing more things like it, uh, not just in regards to ULES, but, but other similar schemes perhaps that other cities are bringing out across the country? Are we going to see uh, um, more of these kinds of legal oppositions? I think it's entirely possible and it is effectively the test case. Now this is the Tory councillors 
taking uh, TfL Transport for London and by extension the Mayor's Office to court for a judicial review. Now we haven't got the outcome of that but they did make some compelling arguments basically on the science, on the pollution statistics that there are and on its rollout and implementation and it's going to be very very interesting to see what the judge decides in that case because I think up and down the country and these zones are coming Bristol since November Glasgow began enforcing its zone last month Cambridge is is planning a congestion charge Uh, Oxford and Canterbury are looking at a slightly different thing in uh, the so-called 15-minute cities which have become a very highly controversial topic in themselves but I think there will be people in all of those places that oppose these changes and these new charges that are looking to that judicial review to see what the outcome is because effectively it is the test case against this type of charging and this ultimately money-making scheme that Sadiq Khan has uh, created in London. Well, yes, Ross, that's one of the many criticisms of Yulet, isn't it? That, that although the mayor says it's about improving air quality, given that it's, it's raised, as you say in your piece, a pretty high sum of £224 million last year, I don't, don't um, motorists just suspect that they're being milked for revenue so, rather than anything to do with air quality? Well, yes, they are. I mean, sort of, the fiscal background to this, if you like, is that um, in the past, um, local authorities, councils, boroughs, etc., derived quite a lot of their income from central government grants. So they've been cut back and back over the years. Um, meanwhile, council tax has been held down through centrally government imposed rules where, you know, if you wanted to increase your council tax by greater than the rate of inflation, you had to have a local referendum, which was very expensive in itself to hold. So council revenues have been squeezed, really. Congestion charges, um, emissions zones and so on are are sort of one of many ways in which councils are sort of trying to claw in as much revenue from alternative sources as they can. But the problem with this sort of thing, it, it creates this um, sort of firstly dishonesty in that you know they're claiming it's all about emissions and congestion when you know really they need the revenue and you know it creates a lot of bad blood I mean you know, it's nice to have low council tax but ultimately you're probably going to be more offended by your local authority if you start getting fines for um infringing some you know weird traffic restriction or something you turn left or enter a bus lane or enter one of these zones in Canterbury or Oxford where you're not supposed to drive you know taxpayers are going to end up feeling far more cheated that way than they would do you know with a say seven percent council tax rise I think you know if you're one of those who gets caught out it causes a lot of bad blood. And um, I think that's what councils... And and this is of all um, political persuasions, by the way. I mean, Sadiq Khan is a Labour figure, who was an MP, and the Tories in London are opposing it. But if you go to Canterbury, for example, well, the the scheme there was pushed particularly by a Conservative um, council leader who lost his seat, by the way, in in the May local elections. So, I mean, that's put the 
you know that's finished off that scheme for the moment but it, you know it's not just labor it's tory lib dem councils they're all at the same thing really trying to use motorists as a way of um raising extra revenue which uh, perhaps in the past they would have got from council taxpayers or or from local government grants thank you ross and ben next in his piece for the magazine this week Ian Williams compares the China policy of both the Conservatives and Labour. He says that Labour is starting to take a more robust stance on China. He joins me alongside Charles Parton, Senior Associate Fellow at RUSI, who worked as a diplomat in China for more than two decades. Ian, could you start by setting out for our listeners the contents of Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee report, which came out at the end of last week? and what it concluded about the government's line on China. Well, the, the report was absolutely scathing. It was a complete demolition uh, of government's policy strategy towards China over a number of years. In fact, it questioned whether or not you could actually call it a strategy at all. It said that Chinese spies, influence operators had penetrated just about every aspect of the UK economy. It, was, it examined academia, technology, business. And it said an enormous lot, a lot, lot of damage was being done and that the government needed to get its act together and needed a coherent policy and a coherent strategy for dealing with China. The government says, well, that's historic. We're now getting our act together. But it's hard to see how that act is coming together because still, there are a, a lot of conflicting signals, a lot of confusion in China policy, and Labour is waltzing into that vacuum. Um, yes, the Labour approach, as we have, as it is emerging, is a little bit woolly, but it does seem to be a lot more joined up than what we've seen from the government recently. And Charles, you, you are an expert on Chinese interference and espionage in the UK. What did you make? of the report's conclusions. Is it anything new? Well, I think I agree in some, some respects with it, and I wouldn't put it quite in quite so stark terms. I mean, it, it's clearly when you think where we started off in 2016 with the Osborne Golden Era, and I spell that with three R's, uh, to, to where we are now, there's been very considerable movement, actually, by no means far enough and, and by no means fast enough. But we are a long way removed um, from where we were, say, five, six, seven years ago. As for, as for whether Labour is more joined up, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the Labour strategy is. They haven't produced one. And, of course, it's much easier being in opposition when you just attack rather than actually come up with anything constructive. I, I think Ian's absolutely right to, to criticise the Conservative government for not producing a strategy on China. I mean, the Foreign Affairs Committee report in 2000, sorry, in, in 2019, April 2019, said one is one long overdue. The ISC report of last week repeats that too. So there is a, a lot more work to be done. And, and I think uh, where the report is especially damning, and rightly so, is in the, the nuclear industry. But elsewhere, progress is being made. And I think if I'm right, I hope I'm right, the government strategy is not to make a great deal of noise about it, to the extent the government has a strategy, actually, but, I mean, it, the government measures are not to make headline news about it, but quietly to, to put in place measures. 
we can pick holes in in all those measures for sure. But as I say, there's been a lot of progress. And so, Ian, what do you make of the argument that, that Charles touched on there, that, that perhaps in the case of Labour, there is an element to the luxury of opposition? You know, you, you can make a lot of sort of tough sounding noises when you when you don't actually have to be in charge of government strategy. But actually, if Labour came to power, perhaps uh, the reality might be somewhat different to the rhetoric. I think that's absolutely right. The luxury of opposition is there. Yvette Cooper at Russi this week was keen to endorse all the findings of the committee and was keen to jump on that criticism. And yes, the reality of power will no doubt be different. But I think the message that they were trying to put across, and I think there may be some compensatory elements here as well, because don't forget, this was the party uh, of uh, Beijing Barry Gardner and, uh, and Jeremy Corbyn, where you couldn't talk about national security and in the same sentence almost as, as the Labour Party. So there may have been an element of overcompensating. But Cooper and I think Rachel Reeves as well, the Shadow Chancellor, have jumped on this notion of an all-of-state approach and the need to coordinate between Treasury actions, between those of the Foreign Office, those of the Home Office, that the challenge is to put greater resilience in the system, whether that's technological, whether that's economic. And it's interesting to see the speech by Rachel Reeves in Washington in May, uh, which, yes, you could say it was there was a lot of protectionism there. There was a lot of nodding towards a bigger state role, but there was an endorsement of this idea of far more robust supply chains, the idea of what's been dubbed friendshoring, moving your your critical supply chains to countries which are somewhat friendlier and rather safer. So I think there is certainly the semblance of a strategy there. There's still a lot of work to be done. Charlie's right when he talks about the government policy having changed in the sense that they have a lot of tools now in place, but they are rather untested. And the strategy, as far as one can tell, is not to have a strategy in the sense that there's not one they want to broadcast loudly. And that, of course, leaves the, the, the ground rather wide open to Labour. Mm. Charles, what did you make of uh, Rachel Reeves's speech or, in Washington or, or her, her general statements about friendshoring, uh, you know, aligning herself perhaps in that, in that sense with the Biden administration uh, when it comes to trying to reduce reliance on cheap Chinese industry? Is that a sign that... We're giving greater value to UK interests and not not being forced into a kind of economic reliance on China? Well, this just takes us to the D word, doesn't it? Whether it stands for decoupling, de-risking, diverging, who knows what. And I think this is a trend of the times. And I have a certain amount of sympathy with the China Daily and the Central Propaganda Department when it says there isn't a great deal of difference between de-risking and decoupling. I think that both sides, that's Chinese and what you might call non-authoritarian states or free and open countries, have an intention of freeing themselves 100% from being in, in a tied to the other. And, and, and let me say that China is as, as, as advanced or as, as keen on, on decoupling or de-risking as, as anyone else. But of course, reality then steps in and, and you can't because we're all very much intertwined. But I think in the terms like data, telecoms, new technologies, etc. That is very much the direction where we'll go. In other areas, one hopes that 
that the cooperation will continue as, as, as fully as possible in non, non-controversial areas of trade and things which can't be used for dual. So, um, you know, that recognition appears in Rachel Ree's speech. I mean, she doesn't put it as boldly as, as I do. And, it, and, and I think it appears in, in, in other of Labour's shadow, shadow ministers. I suspect, although the Conservative Party don't don't say it out quite so loud, or some of them do, but but uh, but it also is something that they have a lot of sympathy with too. But you know, it is the difficulty and the practicality of, of putting out all these things. And I think Ian Ian sort of made a good point there. And I forget precisely which which word he used, but if I paraphrase Ian, it's it's the difference between sure, you know, you, you make laws and you make legislation, you set things up, but the real crucial thing is the degree, the energy. Of implementation and oversight and resource, you know, I, I do give the the current government credit on that. Although there are still some big gaps, like the Treason Act, etc., but when you come to actually to mark their performance, it is much more on the implementation as much as one well, more, more than just the the setting up of, of various laws and bodies. Mm. Ian, uh, what about uh, the sort of third figure that you write about in your piece, aside from Rachel Reeves, Nivette Cooper, is the Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lammy, and his stance when it comes to human rights. I'm talking here, of course, about the persecution of, of, of Uyghur Muslims. Is How does that differ to the government's position? And isn't it there's something a bit funny happening, isn't there, that, that, that Labour's position with David Lammy when it comes to the Uyghurs is actually closer to some of the, the, the more hawkish Tory backbenchers, such as Ian Duncan Smith or Nusrat Ghani, than the Tory government. Indeed, and I think that's not lost on some of those Tory backbenchers as well. Let's, let us not forget that, that Labour voted in the Commons debate in, in favour of designating what was going on in Xinjiang as genocide. And uh, Lamy has said, I mean, again, it's a little vague, but he said that he would seek multilateral international means to have it classified as genocide. Of course, that does present problems in implementation internationally, but certainly the government has been reluctant to use that term uh, about what has been going on in Xinjiang. Also, Lamy's been very, and also other Labour shadow spokespeople on the foreign affairs front have been very outspoken about Hong Kong and their view that the government is not fulfilling its obligations towards the people of Hong Kong and obligations spelt out under international law. Labour was very critical of what appeared to be a less than strong response to the Manchester incident last year, when you recall a Hong Kong protester was dragged inside the consulate and beaten by, among others, uh, the Consul General himself. Also, Labour's been very outspoken about the bounties that have been put on the heads of Hong Kong exiles, uh, three of whom are living in the UK. And it's unfortunate, of course, that that came just a couple of months after the government had sent an investment minister to Hong Kong, the first time in five years that a minister had been there. So this, again, comes out of those, those mixed signals. It's all right saying, yes, we're, we're, we're very much supportive of Hong Kong and, and, and supportive of the rights and, uh, and defensive of the attacks upon Hong Kong pro-democracy people in Britain. But the signals being sent out are, are extremely mixed. And again, that's something that Labour has leapt upon. 
But again, the challenge is what would happen in office. Hmm. Um, and just finally, Charles, I, I want to get your thoughts on the, the government's response to reports of intimidation of Hong Kongers living in the UK who have fled to the UK. Do you think it's fair to, to say that the government's response has been inadequate here? I mean, you have to ask yourself the question, how are they going to do all this? You, you, you may have someone you know, in Peckham or wherever who suddenly gets a phone call and you can't expect our government to, to know that that's gone on uh, and, and the pressures unless those people start talking about it. And when they do, and many don't because they've got relatives back in China who will be pressurized and, and persecuted. So, so when they do, then of course the, the government should act. And again, it has to act in accordance with the law and with evidence, which is not always necessarily as fast as the press would wish. So, yeah, I, I, on, on the question of human rights generally, I, I don't think it's useful to use the word genocide, only because, although it is genocide, as was concluded by the Uyghur Tribunal back in a year or two ago, it was on, I think, the fourth ground of, of the UN Convention. And when you use the term, most people think of of Nazis, etc. And it's very easy for the Chinese to deflect that criticism because clearly they're not killing in, in, in that way. But where we should be, what we should be emphasizing, I think and much more cogently, would be the Rome Statute of the, of the International Court of Justice because there are 11 grounds set out in that for crimes against humanity. And it's that phrase we should use, crimes against humanity. And of those 11 grounds, China is guilty at least on 11, if not eight. Uh, sorry, seven, if not eight. And I think that's a much better grounds on, on, on which we should be uh, going. And then, you know, when it comes to Hong Kong and, and, and bounties, yes, I think we should be sanctioning those high-level Hong Kong officials who are responsible for that policy. Is it reprehensible for the government to send an investment minister to Hong Kong? No, of course not. If, if investment is not connected with, with things that are either dangerous on the military grounds or repressive, the repressive Chinese machine, trade investment should go on. We, we can't just live in a, in a hermetic little hermit's country and, and, and slowly be seen to be irrelevant. But if it, if it impinges in any way upon human rights or military, then of course it becomes inappropriate. So there has, there has to be a balance. And, and I think that um, sometimes someone on, on, in, in the Tory party will scream blue murder, something that is just normal procedure. Thank you, Ian and Charles. And finally, Lights, camera, industrial action. This is, of course, the news this week that the Screen Actors Guild are striking in support of the Writers Guild of America over concerns that artificial intelligence will take over the role of screenwriters and perhaps even actors too. Gareth Roberts argues that there is such a glut of poor scripts in Hollywood that we may not even notice if a few are written by AI. He joins me now with Anna Smith, film critic and host of the Girls on Film podcast. Gareth, you're a television screenwriter as well as a script editor. Do you fear being replaced by AI? Um, I didn't used to think so. I had that slightly smug feeling that, oh, well, I'll be safe. Then I started seeing some of the the things, particularly that ChatGPT is coming out with after now it's been learning more. There's just a, a feeling of hubris, potential hubris here that I would like to be able to go, oh, it'll never capture what I can do. But you do have to wonder and worry about it. I mean, we are all to a certain extent 
collections of predictable patterns. Whether that maps exactly onto human intelligence, I don't know, but it is a worry, yeah, yeah. And and you say in your piece that you, as your role as a, as a script editor, uh, you sometimes had weekends where you just read absolutely tons of scripts, many of which are very bad. I wonder, is there a difference at the moment between the type of generic badness you might get from uh, human writers and generic badness you might get from something like ChatGPT? Are they, are they a different kind of bad or are they getting oddly similar? They're getting oddly similar. They didn't used to be. I mean, obviously, they, they didn't used to be AI. But bad spec scripts, bad unsolicited scripts and manuscripts, things like that, um, they tended to be similar to each other. I mean, either they were just badly spelled, badly presented, you know, had no idea. Or, the, I mean, the really soul-crushing variety, um, the ones which you read and you just feel terrible, are the people that have sort of got it right, but it's just not good enough. And that is more what ChatGPT is like, I think got that quality of, of sort of bog standardness but not having that specialness that a human a good writer can provide and anna you you've interviewed so many actors and, and directors what what are people in the industry saying about the increasing influence of ai and do you think they're right to be worried about it I think they are right to be worried and I can see why they're striking. Um, certainly sort of off-record actors that I've spoken to are seriously concerned about their rights, about the use of their image, about the possibility of AI completely replacing actors. I mean, other people are more optimistic. Personally, myself, I feel that in both in terms of the writers and the actors, that, that humanity wins through. And I hope that we'll always be able to tell, as Gareth says, that extra special something that humans bring to the table. But I do think now is the right time to be having this conversation as the technology is improving so rapidly. You know, this really could change the future of film. Hmm. Do you think if you wanted to be maybe somewhat cruel about it, some films you watch nowadays, particularly often being Hollywood films with lots of studio interference on the process. Some of the scripts sometimes feel so formulaic. They may as well have been written by chat GPT. I mean, are Hollywood writers who, who are producing those kinds of um, uh, more generic films, are they just going to have to sort of up their game somewhat? That would be great if that was the outcome of this. I don't think it's all down to the writers. As you say, studio interference is a massive issue. And, you know, I've been writing and talking about film for 25 years. And, you know, the amount of cliches that you see in mainstream movies hasn't changed. You know, it's it's still, there's there's a lot of dull scripts out there and there's a lot of films which you can just tell have been influenced by constant rewrites and, and six different writers and pressures from the marketing department. So I don't think that's really changed. I mean, whether the cliches come from bots or whether they come from real people, they're, they're still going to be there, I'm afraid. Um, but the great thing is, is that there's also, I hope, still humans writing terrific strips, the ones that push through, the ones that win the awards, the ones that you can tell, even in mainstream movies, have a human writer. I mean, you look at the Barbie movie at the moment, actually, that really does feel like the work of real people. It may not be to everyone's tastes, but there's 
there's a real originality and flair to that and you can hear Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach's voices coming through in the script and that's a mainstream movie but I'd contrast that with um, the current Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 which while is a very entertaining action movie my gosh the exposition is so dull and you, you sort of and so unlikely it's just like, it seems like each famous actor takes takes sort of one line of exposition then pass it on to the next one in a way that a conversation would never happen and, and that's the kind of film and the kind of dialogue that I would like to see improved. But actually, in the case of the, the new Mission Impossible film, it's it, despite the very clunky exposition, it has got very, very good reviews for the most part. Uh, lots of five stars, you know, five stars from Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian and Robbie Collin in The Telegraph. You know, we reviewed it very positively for Spectator. So obviously what made that film good was sort of almost independent of the script. So for films like that, which which being a kind of big action film that's more about the set pieces than the you know the dialogue could there be a place for ai to write that kind of a formula if it's not as important a um a feature of that particular film than perhaps other films that are more more reliant upon dialogue well for me that's why this film is a four out of five rather than a five out of five you know i i would like the humanity in those lines and i don't see why we shouldn't have a real human writing them in a way that sounds authentic and real in in the way that you know actually some blockbusters manage to do I do think that this is the interesting thing about the writer's strike, you know, that there's a lot of debate about at what point AI could be used, if at all, and whether it could be used to, to set up a treatment and then, you know, help sort of almost helping real humans and almost working together. And, and that's an interesting thought, whether with films like that, you could start out with the basic dialogue generated by AI and then have a writer fine tune it. But, you know, personally, I'm old fashioned. I'd say just get a real person on the job. And Gareth, of course, as, as well as the Writers Guild going on strike in Hollywood, they've been joined as of last week by the Actors Guild, partly in solidarity of their cause, but also actors are, are worried too. Perhaps you could explain to our listeners what, what their concerns are from, from their own career perspective. I think they're just worried about, and rightly so in my opinion, you know, their image and their 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 whole characteristics, their, their bag of tricks can just be copied quite easily. And this is... I think far more advanced and down the line than it is with writing. If you even look at like the little face time apps and things like that, you know, we've all seen those little clips of, you know, our friends of suddenly in a Bollywood movie or whatever, or, or, you know, uh, someone we know or some famous person is suddenly a member of the royal family or whatever. And they are getting more and more convincing. And obviously we've seen with things like bringing back Peter Cushing from the dead, um, de-aging Harrison Ford although these things are still a bit clunky now they won't be that very much longer and I think actors have got a much stronger and more immediate worry about this I think they're 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 the ones that are, are really in trouble here I would agree, actually. I do think it is a concern. And actually, a big part of the strike centres around extras, or as they call them, sort of background artists in the US. And they're sort of, there's this positing that their image could be used and they'd sign away, they'd have, be forced to sign away the rights for their image to be used as a, in the background for eternity, just for one day's pay. And that's that's obviously not, you know, not going to replace a lifetime's worth of not much money, but some earnings, you know. So that is a worry. And also voiceover artists, I think, you know, that's, that's a real concern for them. Because if you could, you know, learn someone's voice patterns, replicate that. And that's probably where 
you know, the first step of it being the most convincing rather than replacing a visual, you know, style of an actor, um, replacing their voice is, it seems that technology is quite advanced in that. So that is another concern. And that's why contracts and agreements need to be really, you know, looked at very, very closely. And the agents and the actors themselves really need to to fight for for the best deal possible. Otherwise, they could end up really having problems making a living. Hmm. Well, I suppose my final question to to both of you would be, how optimistic are you about the, the future of film and television when these technological advances are happening? I mean, I suppose people have, in the past tends to get quite existential over the idea of the death of cinema and, and, and so on. But do you think this is just another example of technology coming along that needs to be adapted to and actually it will sort of level out and, you know, cinema will always prevail, it will always survive? What do you, what do you, what do you think? Um, I'm not sure about this one. <laughs> um... I think with with television, it's already in the last like 10, 15 years because of streaming changed out of all recognition in a way. But, you know, television as we used to know it as a small medium, as something that was smaller than you in a corner that you talked at, that uh, a lot of it was to do with the connective tissue, the weather, the news, all those kind of things. That's kind of going now. We can get those things anywhere. And so what we're left with is kind of big dramas, big comedies, this kind of thing. So I think that is changing hugely. And because of the streaming model, which I think is probably unsustainable, that might collapse anyway. And with films as well, they're, the length of them, they seem to be making them so long that they're almost designed to be made in an environment where you can pause and go to the loo, get a drink, whatever. I think these things are huge. I'm not sure which way they're going to go, but I'm not optimistic that things will stay the same and that these mediums will come out looking like they do now well i am optimistic about the future of cinema's ability to adapt and i think that's what we've seen happen since challenges brought by streaming brought by the pandemic and and now these sort of relatively fresh challenges so i would like to think that the industry can work together and create a new normal and and it it may well be a blend of the many things that we're discussing here and it may be that livelihoods are unfortunately affected but in terms of the end product for the consumer i mean on girls on film we champion a lot of great indie films and some of them cross through to the mainstream so i don't think that those kind of films will will suffer too much but i think they will still be able to make Make human, believable, credible, funny, dark stories that audiences can respond to. So I just hope the money remains in place for them to be made. But, you know, it, it is a constantly evolving industry. It is an industry under threat, but I do think it will survive. Thank you, Gareth and Anna. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you have enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Bye.